0: Hello and welcome once again to another episode of Strange Planet. And if you'd like to get deeper into Strange Planet, just click on the link below and you can become a premium subscriber. There are three monthly tiers or programs to choose from. Choose the one that's right for you. You gain access to commercial free listening, bonus episodes, a subscription to my monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum, discounts on Strange Planet merchandise and more. StrangePlanet.com supportingcast.fm strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm or again click the link in the episode notes child sex trafficking uh could there be a more abhorrent situation um it's a difficult topic to discuss but um we have to discuss it um i think the world now slowly finally waking up to the reality of child sex trafficking through films like sound of freedom uh, but also um, a book by lee dundas that um, addresses this very topic other forms of slavery as well it's called just stand up my fight for freedom from the brothels of asia to the streets of america and lee is uh, known the world over for her blazing and fiery speeches in defense of freedom and liberty She's a human rights attorney and abolitionist dedicated to preserving basic freedoms while also combating global injustices like child slavery and the peddling of medical tyranny disguised as progress. She began her career nearly 30 years ago, representing fortune 500 companies in state and federal court before she was offered the dual role in 2013 of working for an anti-slavery NGO as their general counsel and prosecution director in 2020, Lee took the lesson she learned fighting Asian criminal syndicates that were hell bent on destroying children to the streets of America, where she joined with others to defeat an even greater threat, a second Holocaust designed to eradicate our very humanity and crush any who would speak against it. Lee Dundas, welcome to strange planet. How are you?
2: I'm good. It's a pleasure to be here today. Thanks so much for having me on.
0: Um, It's difficult even to talk about it for some of us, for me, um anybody well, it doesn't matter if you have children, if you don't have children, if you have a, a heart beating in your chest it's it's difficult to broach this. I can't imagine witnessing it, um, uh, you know, going going into these into these brothels to try to rescue these children and seeing what's happening to these children. How do you do it?
2: You know, it is a it is a bitter pill to swallow. Um, it's it's certainly not an easy road to hoe, as they would say. Um, I jumped into the fight in 2013. Um, I was recruited as general counsel to an anti-sex slavery nonprofit, which kind of sounds like you're gonna be pushing paperwork, doing legal work for, a, for an NGO. But in reality, they had hired me to move part-time to, to Thailand and open their Southeast Asia office. They were operating at that point in Greece and parts of Europe. Um, I would say probably the average age of their, you know, rescued girl uh, was late teens. A lot of these girls were poor. They were from Ukraine. They were from other poor parts of Europe, Roma gypsy territory, like my 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 ancestors. And, uh, you know, these recruiters would come to town and say, hey, you can go be a waitress. You can go be a, a maid at a nice hotel in Greece or somewhere, you know, in a, in a nice city in Europe. And, They would agree and they would be drugged and their paperwork would be taken away and they'd find themselves waking up uh, in a brothel. But when you rescue these girls, they're 16, 17, 18, 19 years old. And when you ask them if they knew that what they were going to be doing, you know, when they got to the end of the line, they're like, well, I thought I was going to be a waitress. I didn't know I was going to be tied to a bed and being raped 10 times a night. That's not what I signed up for. It was a bait and switch. But when we when we went into Southeast Asia and we started doing the work there, and I had, even though I hadn't done the work, I had studied a lot about sex slavery at that point. And I told our the the NGO I had started doing work for, I said, you know, I'm guessing the girls we're going to be pulling out of brothels in this region are going to be a good decade younger uh, than the ones that we deal with in Europe, because in Asia it's a very different situation. There's immense poverty, much like there is in Africa, India, and various parts of Europe. Um, a lot of the governments in in those regions are communist, or they may as well be, or they used to be communist, and still in form and function are. And literally, they are so poor, my friend, that they will, you know, look at their 10 kids in a given year and go, wow, if I don't sell one, if I don't sell my eldest daughter to a brothel, they're all going to starve. So before you demonize the parents who would sell their children to a brothel, you have to understand it might, as crazy as this sounds, might have actually been the lesser of two evils um and we in in first world modern day societies with you know democracies or what used to be you know constitutional republics and democracies in places we find it hard to think with that but that's the reality and um and sure enough i mean one of the first uh, instances I encountered when I was over there was a seven-year-old who was at that point in time in a Laotian rescue facility, meaning she had already been trafficked, sold by her family. She'd already been pulled out of the brothels uh, by some Christian NGO and placed into a, a, a rehab and rescue facility. But I mean, she was all of seven—that's second grade, right? So, so the work is very, very challenging and. Um, and, and the things you encounter are really you know very difficult to describe one of the first months I was working over there I did a lot of work in the deep south where we had bombs going off every day because opposite you know across the river from this town of 140 child brothels that I was working in were radical uh, Muslim Islamic jihadi terror training camps and they were, literally nuking bombs off, detonating bombs, using the girls as target practice, the brothels as target practice, every single day. 330 bombs went off the first year I worked there, which is one a day except for about one month of the year. And uh, But on on this day, I was back in my hotel room, or so I thought, in Bangkok, safe and sound. And one of the um, the Navy SEAL type uh, Special Forces guys that we were working with hands me a, a thumb drive or actually I think it was a CD at the time. This was 10 years ago and it was Friday night. And I said, what is this? And he said, well, you'll see, uh, go, go back to the hotel, go home and I'll, I'll catch up with you on Monday, but put it in your computer and it it's evidence. And it, it I must have known, you know, intuitively that this was not going to be something. So I let Friday night go by. I'm, I'm, you know, queen of procrastination at this point. Saturday, Sunday night comes up. I still haven't looked at what they gave me. I pop it into my laptop. I order some room service up to the hotel room and instantly flashes onto the screen um, video footage that had been recorded, first person video footage recorded by a Japanese sex tourist who had come to Thailand or Cambodia or whatever to rape girls And he put a GoPro on his head so that he could capture the images and I guess relive them later. And when they busted the guy, they obviously recovered the GoPro camera and and images. And he had uh, bought two different seven-year-olds who were, you know, my daughter was eight at the time. So up on screen flashes this guy as, I don't really see the guy because he's got the GoPro on his head, but he's literally raping these two seven-year-olds right on camera. And that's what flashes onto my laptop. And right as that happens, uh, the doorbell rings, you know, somebody knocks room service is here. And I'm like, holy heck, right? They're going to think that I've got porn up on my (laughs) laptop. So I slam my laptop down, room service comes in, I get the guy out of my room. I promptly, you know, go in the bathroom, hurl up every bit of food in my system, even though I had just ordered dinner, which I was now not at all inclined to want to eat. And then my uh, husband called, and um, I I had Skype up, so now I had just wiped the deck on my on my computer, and you know the guy had been filming the images. It was missionary; he was face down, so the girls had been on their back looking up, right? And onto the screen now, as soon as I get rid of what looks like porn but is actually evidence, is my husband and daughter. And they are laying down on her bed in Orange County. She's eight, same age, basically. And he's got his arm around her in the bed and they're reading Good Night Moon or whatever it is, some book. And they had called to to FaceTime mommy, basically. And I looked at that and my daughter was in the exact same position. She had her right elbow up as the girl had been. And I mean, I thank God the flight home is like 30 hours because there were many a time coming home from Thailand where I just spent the entirety of my little flight packed into like cattle into coach, uh, just crying on and off and, and get, you know, doing self therapy to get my head right before I jumped back into being a, an orange County soccer mom to an eight year old. But it's, it's not an easy road to hoe, but I will say, it is the single most gratifying work I have ever done in my life. Because when you actually have a positive effect you feel uh, a sense of peace and happiness and justice that is truly incomparable. It's you know, it's the feeling you get when your kid is wrongly accused and you go into the principal's office and you you give it to him good and you let him know what actually occurred. And they're like, oh, oh, sorry, sorry. You know, we have the facts wrong or whatever. And you go out and you go, yes, I've, you know, i I fought my corner and I've done something good on the planet today because my kid was innocent and I've, I've made my case. And now everybody knows that. And you feel really accomplished. It's that feeling times a gajillion. So. Uh, we do good work over there, but it's not easy work, and it's not for the faint of heart.
0: Lee Dundas, just stand up. My fight for freedom from the brothels of Asia to the streets of America. So explain um, how you get the bad the bad guys how and how and how you uh, extricate these poor children from their their plight.
2: Uh, it's it's not easy. Uh, with the release of Sound of Freedom, I think a lot of people have a sort of an idea of how it goes in these foreign countries, whether they're Latin American countries or Asian countries or Indian or, you know, whatever, uh, African. But uh, a, a lot of what these NGOs, these non-governmental organizations, uh, nonprofits do is they hire former law enforcement assets. They hire former cops, former SWAT, usually former special forces, military, rangers who've retired, Navy SEALs who've retired. And we bring them onto the payroll. Um, they're usually trained. That's why you're hiring that guy. You're not going to have to train him how to use a gun and, and handle himself in a dangerous situation. He already comes with that built into his resume. And uh, you order things. I mean, one of the first things I was tasked with doing uh, in my job is ordering online uh, high definition, low light wristwatches. There were these big, chunky wristwatches like you see the military guys wear, you know, scuba type watches. Uh, And it looked just like a big, chunky, masculine watch. But in reality, it also doubled as an audio video recording device specifically designed for bar, low light, high definition, low light type situations, which is what the brothels are. It's dim lighting, obviously, a lot of the time. And the guys are trained to go in there and they pretend to be a John. They pretend to be a pedophile. They pretend to be a buyer. And they walk in and they a lot of these brothels, you don't just walk in and it's girls in a room. The front of these brothels is typically a restaurant or a little bar or a little saloon, or in many cases, a karaoke bar in Asian countries. And you walk in and it looks, you know, there's some chairs and tables and it looks like the front end of a tiny little restaurant. I mean, maybe there's plastic uh, garden chairs there instead of like what you would see in a normal restaurant in our area, but that's sort of what it looks like. And then you go in and they give you a menu and you order a burger and a beer and you maybe sing some karaoke songs on the TV. Uh, You know, when you're done in an hour, you say, okay, and I'll take number 13 and that's a girl. And then you make your way into the back and you do what you came to do, which was really not sing karaoke and eat a burger. It was to actually, you know, rape a, rape a child. Um, But we train our guys to basically go pretend to be those types of buyers. And it's a hard, it's a hard road to hoe for these men. I mean, a lot of these guys are doing the work because they're honest, often they're religious, God-loving, mission-minded people who have one or two or three or eight kids at home, not unlike Tim Ballard, who founded Operation Underground Railroad after being with the CIA and DHS. And these are guys who are leaving their own kids behind to go pretend to be a child rapist. And, and you know, it takes some acting skills, and it also really screws you up mentally. As bad as it is for me to go into these brothels with my Navy SEALs, you know, they're they're really doing the God's work and hard work because they have to be pretending to be a, a pedo. Right. And uh, they chat up the mamas and they take, stock of their surroundings? Was there a bouncer? Were there five bouncers? Were they packing knives? Were they packing guns? Are they doing illegal cocaine deals? And often it's not cocaine in Asia. It's you know it's the golden poppy heroin uh, capital of the world. It's, it's often other types of drugs. But is there an illicit drug trade? Is there an illicit weapon trade? Where are the girls from? What language are they speaking? 90% of the girls in the Thai brothels are coming out of Lao. They speak Laotian, not Thai. Um, and when you go in to bust the brothel, these are the things you need to know because you don't take a knife to a gunfight. You know, right. uh, you want to have the right uh, tools and you want to know where the girls you, you want to be able to speak the girls language or have somebody on staff who speaks it. once you've recovered the girls. Sorry, and- when you say,
0: sorry, Lee, for the interruption. But when you say bust the, the brothels, uh, these are in many cases what American former cops, uh, uh, DHS agents and so forth. They don't have jurisdiction yeah. there. How do they how does that happen?
2: No, but here's the thing, and and I've heard the criticisms of sound of freedom in many of these third world countries. Nobody has jurisdiction. I mean, it's a no man's land. And to give you an idea of the scene, the town I work in, which you can see the girl whose face is fuzzed out back here, that's one of the girls trapped in one of the hundred and forty uh, child brothels on the Thailand Malaysia border. First night I'm there, night I met her. We're sitting outside on a park bench in front of the brothels before busy time starts. It's twilight. It's not you know midnight yet. And two cops jump out of an SUV and they're in full uniform, you know, beige uniform with guns on their hips. And they walk by and they see me and the pastor and the girl sitting there and they go, oh, you Ka, ka," which is the, the Thai greeting, and we exchange greetings. And they walk right past us and make a right turn into the first brothel. And they're in there maybe 30 minutes, give or take, and they come out and they have a bag by their by, one of the guys has a bag by his thigh that I had not noticed on the way in, but I notice it now because it's a little fluffier. It's got some stuff in it. And he goes five feet down the alley and he makes another right turn into the next brothel. He's in there maybe five minutes this time. Comes out, the bag is bigger. Third brothel, same, repeat, repeat, repeat. And every hour, as he works his way up the dirt alley on this side and down the other side over the next three hours, the bag is getting progressively bigger. And every hour or so, he spends 30 minutes instead of five minutes in the brothel. And I look at the pastor I'm working with and he goes, do you want me to explain? And I said, indeed, I do. And he said, think 1940s New York Mafia they're on the take. And I said, oh, so they're tar- charging a protection fee and turning a blind eye to the brothel to allow them to stay in business. And let me guess, when they're spending a half hour inside the brothel instead of five minutes, they're not just charging a fee to the Mama Song son, or the brothel owner, they're also raping the girls they're supposed to be protecting and rescuing for free. And he goes, exactly. So to say, do you have jurisdiction? Who cares? From, who, from whom are you going to get the jurisdiction? A, because On a scale of one to five, with five being the most corrupt, the Thai police routinely rank a four or five. Uh, The cops are not there. The the lawyers, the prosecutors are not there to help you. When they get off the job, they're either working, doing what those guys were doing as part of the police force. Or alternatively, they go around the corner and they, they sign in and clock into their second job that night as the bouncer, For the brothel, so they can get enough money in their coffers to not be able to sell their kid to a brothel and instead put their kid in private school in New Zealand. So that's sort of the scene. And it's like, well, jurisdiction from whom? You're asking Satan himself to give you a blessing to be there. Now, that said, in the countries we work in, there are less corrupt, hopefully completely not corrupt portions of the police department, those are the ones we interface with. And one of the first jobs I had for part of my part of of working with this NGO is hammering out an MOU, a memorandum of understanding, basically a contract that allowed us carte blanche Uh, permission to operate in country, because even the good parts of the police forces in these countries know that they're undermanned, overwhelmed. I mean, America's undermanned for the current fight they're in. You think they're going to handle the cartel problem in our country and at the border? No. Um, They could add 10x the number of cops to the force and they're still outgunned, right? So, in many cases, there is a public-private partnership, there is a governmental partnership with these NGOs, and we do get the blessing of the governments we're working in the country of before we go in there to basically act as an ancillary law enforcement arm to the parts of their government that are not, hopefully, as corrupt as the rest of the government. Um, So, we did get the blessing. We are able to sort of act as an adjunct police force. That's why we hired retired policemen and and, uh, military police and things like that. But yeah, I mean, you're in a no man's land. <laughs> You've got the brothels are being bombed by radical jihadis across the river. You know, the cops that are down there half the time are having their bodies torn in half from the from the jihads, let alone getting their feet underneath them long enough in order to actually bust a brothel. And that's, you know, what the can you see the bombs going off here? There, oh, yes. That's what the brothel town looks like after a bombing. So, you know. You're walking into hell on earth, Sodom and Gomorrah, and you're just, you're putting one foot in front of the the other and trying to do your best to actually get the girls out, get them help and put the bad guys away.
0: If I were a former cop and I was on the job there, I mean, I would, my inclination would be capital punishment at the scene of the crime. I mean, how do they restrain themselves?
2: Well, I think uh, through sheer dint of will and a lot of self-restraint, I will tell you that every single person who's ever gone to the country with me, from the uh, husband of the pastor who founded our uh, nonprofit to a bunch of VIPs from megachurches around the world to law enforcement to just occasional do or Christian nurses who are there to, on a medical-type mission to help us with the girls once they're, you know, coming out of the brothels, make sure they don't have STDs, get them get them the healthcare they need. Every single person, Christian, atheist, Republican, Democrat, you know, from Switzerland, from South Texas, has said exactly what you said. You know, death would be to get an end for them. Um, and uh, And somehow through, I don't know, the grace of God and a lot of self-restraint, uh, the guys end up busting the bad guys. And by that I don't just mean the ones who are selling. I, I told our guys from the from the jump. I said, look, I'm I'm new to this fight, I've never done it. But what I gather all the other nonprofits are doing is they're going in and they're busting the sellers, the mamasons, the brothel owners, the people who are selling the girls. And don't get me wrong, I'm we're here to do that as well. But if you are chatting up a pedophile from Chicago who's a dentist or an architect or a freaking accountant, get his name. Cause I will absolutely rat him out to FBI. And, and, you know, this was 10 years ago when the FBI was actually, you know, doing good more than not. Um, Or to, you know, MI whatever in England or whatever the, the, the federal law enforcement basically is in the country. And I'll have him picked up because in many of these first world countries, it's not just illegal to rape a child in the country you're in. It's one of the unique areas of the law where it's illegal no matter where you do it. So if you're an American, yeah, it's illegal to have sex with a child here. Uh, in many cases, if you do the crime out of country, it's as if it didn't happen. Not the way our laws are set up. If you rape a child in Cambodia, you're still going to fry on American soil for that. And what it? fascinatingly enough, to your question, I was talking to an FBI agent when I first started doing this work. We were having a lunch down in Long Beach, but he was the guy who was posted to Southeast Asia. We just both happened to be in America for that week. And I said, where do you prosecute them? Once you bust the bad guys, like in Cambodia or here, and he goes, It depends. I go, On what he goes, on whether we think the locals are going to get an actual conviction and for how long. But if we're convinced they're going to get a conviction for at least as long as many years as they would be doing hard time here, we will let the Cambodians prosecute and jail the guy for 20 years. Because let me tell you, little girl. Doing 20 years in a Cambodian prison where the cockroaches are the size of rats and the rats are the size of cats, Mm -hmm. that is a way tougher tour of duty than doing it in a white collar, you know, minimum, whatever, security in Chicago where you get three square meals.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. We'll take a quick timeout. Lee Dundas, just stand up. My fight for freedom from the brothels of Asia to the streets of America. Back with more in a moment. And what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love Tales of the Paranormal. But if you want more, listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. We're now crossing a zone of turbulence. Please return your seats and food trays to their upright position and make sure your carry-on luggage is safely stowed you're about to leave everything you know behind this is richard sarat's strange planet strange planet
0: we're back with human rights attorney abolitionists dedicating to preserving basic freedoms and combating global injustices like child slavery lee dundas just stand up is the book um where you mentioned the uh, the Thai border with Malaysia, 140 brothels. Oh. Uh, is there one part of the world where it's like the absolute worst in terms of child sex slavery? As is, is it Thailand? Is it someplace else?
2: There are some pretty rough parts of Cambodia and Thailand and Laos. Um, I have not been to India. Um, I am given to understand that it's. a a pretty bad scene there and in some of the Latin American, South American countries, probably on par with each other. But, uh, you know, child sex slavery, child sex trafficking happens worldwide. We get these soccer moms, these, you know, homemakers, grandmas from Nebraska, and they say, oh, well, that's so sad. That's happening over there. But it doesn't happen here or in my town. You know, maybe that happens in L.A. or Chicago, but not in my town. And I said my first answer is, do you have a hotel or a motel in your town? And no matter how small the town is, it they usually at least have a motel nearby. And they go, well, yeah, you know, we have a tiny little motel. I'm like, then the odds are that you have actually had a girl sold for sex by a pimp in your town. Because the motels and hotels are the new red light districts. They're the new brothels. But in America, in Britain, in first world countries, you have to really work to find underage youth for sale. Do they sell girls on the internet on back page type places or Craigslist? Yeah, of course they do. Um, and you know, you can go to a hotel and you can go get in your car on the wrong side of town, but it's a little different because it's not as easy to say, I want to rape a five-year-old boy or a two-year-old girl in America and walk in and be able to do it like you would buying a, a new comforter at Macy's in Asia, where I work in India, as I as I'm given to understand, in parts of Africa, parts of Latin America, you can walk into these brothels. You've got pedophiles exchanging information online. Oh, if you want little boys, this this part of the town is good. If you want little girls, there's this brothel. If you want babies, if you want, you know, people who are both sexes, intersex. I mean, they're just they're just trading. You know, it's it's like a, a pervy fetish pedophiles, I don't know, dream come true. And they trade all this data and you can literally go into a restaurant, you know, like I said, a a brothel and say, uh, yeah, I'm going to get a burger and I'll take the five-year-old for, you know, number 13 when I get done here. And it's just that easy. And it's a little more work in America. It's a little more underground. It's a little more covert, uh, particularly the younger you get. Can you find a 17-year-old in America? Yeah. Can you find a 7-year-old Yeah, but you got to know people. You got to kind of got to sleuth it out. You got to know where to go. You got to make sure you're not going to get arrested in a sting operation. In a lot of these other countries, you just walk in and you do the deed as quickly as you would walk in do a bar or a Macy's or a school and say, I'm here and I'm here to do blank. Except in America, if you say I'm here to rape a child for sex, they're like, here's the handcuffs. And if you say that in Asia, they're like, okay, that'll be $300 cash US, please. So it's it's a little more in your face over there. I,
0: I, I guess I've been operating under this delusion that you know pedophiles are this small subset of humanity, okay. but th- there's such a thriving business, global business for it. Obviously, there's a huge demand. I mean,
2: huge. What is the scope
0: of the size of the business? How many how many children are being trafficked, and how many? creepy pedophiles are out there?
2: Uh, a lot more than we would think on both scores. Um, the current best estimate is that human trafficking is $150 billion, with a B, billion-dollar-a-year industry, which is a lot of money, and that there are 40 million with an M, people currently enslaved. Uh, one of the most recent statistics I saw a few years back was that Um, 89% of those who are enslaved, whether they're enslaved for regular labor trafficking or sex trafficking by name, are still forced to commit acts of sexual servitude. So maybe you're picking strawberries and not making any money because you're getting trafficked in the Central Valley of Cali, or you're in a sweatshop in a garment district in LA being forced to make t-shirts all day, every day for, you know, 10 cents a day. But guess what? When you get done at the end of the night, even though you're being labor trafficked, a lot of times your pimp and all his cousins and friends or, you know, your boss or whatever is going to come in and help himself to you. So even the labor trafficking is bleeding over into the sex trafficking, but it's basically almost 90 percent of servitude, uh, slavery worldwide in is involving some sexual act. And 90% of those enslaved are female. So if you do the math, we have, to give you a frame of reference, we have 40 million people currently in California almost. So that is literally like waving some evil magic wand and waking up tomorrow and having every single person in my state handcuffed to a bed, being raped five, 10, 15 times a night for profit. Um That is, you know, and and 90% of those would be rape, not labor trafficking, you know, so what is that 90% of You know, 36 million people, right, being women who are being sexually enslaved in California. I mean, that's the magnitude of the problem. And it gives you some idea of the magnitude of the demand, right? Because these women aren't raping themselves. For every girl who's a sex slave, you've got at least one buyer, in many cases more than one a night, right? Um, And and the perverts used to – I think there used to be – I don't know what the stats are, but, you know, X percent of men were doing this – And that's, that's been ever increasing lately. And the reason for that is because of the advent of technology. It used to be in America, um, that if you wanted to go have sex with an underage minor, you kind of had to work for it before cell phones, you had to know where the bad part of town is or know somebody who was screwed up in the head like you and know what part of town to go to. You had to get in your car where you might be, you know, your license plate is on there. If you're busted, people are going to know that you were busted. You have to drive to the creepy part of town. Maybe it's where the gangbangers are. Maybe you get caught in crossfire on the way there and you die before you even get a chance to have sex illegally. You know, some girl who's got diseases is crawling through your car. You're having to go to a seedy motel. There were a lot of disincentives to a guy who was wired weird actually acting out in real life his perverse fantasy. Now, much easier. That guy who's been thinking about it but hasn't done it waits until his wife is out of town for a conference in Chicago for her work, packs off his two or three kids to the neighbor, to the cousin, to the you know sister-in-law's house, to the Girl Scout slumber party for the night, takes his cell phone, orders some pizza from Domino's, orders some beer from Uber Eats, And then he orders a girl and he doesn't need to get in his car. He doesn't need to risk being busted in a back alley on the wrong side of town. He orders a girl and she is delivered to his hotel room or his house where he has sex with her in the comfort of his own house. And then when he's done, she leaves and he's never had to even freaking lift anything other than a finger. So the ease with which men can uh, slide from thinking about it into doing it is, you know, the barriers are much less to entry at this point for those pedophiles. And it's making for a much larger crowd of people who are doing it.
0: Is this like the war on drugs where like you take out a, a drug kingpin and three more rise up, you know, to take yeah. place? I mean, yeah. it's is this like shoveling sand against the tide?
2: It is. And it's one of the reasons, in addition doing, to doing traditional rescues, that one of the types of novel initiatives uh, a different. I, I I worked for A21 campaign, it stands for abolishing 21st century slavery. I was the general counsel for many years. Over the last decade, but I also did work with another nonprofit that was different from the one I just talked about. That nonprofit was actually originally founded um, by a banker, a lawyer who was a banker. He was in house counsel for BNY Mellon. What is BNY Mellon? They're Bank of New York and they merged with Mellon Assets some years ago. And when they did that merger, they became the single biggest financial institution on the planet. They moved something like $30 trillion a day in money moves. I mean, it's just insane. Like they are the 800 pound gorilla. And so this guy was the lawyer in Hong Kong for that bank. I mean, he had a pretty busy plate already. But I met him one day in 2013 when I just was getting into this work. And he's like yeah, a British guy by 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 birth, living in Hong Kong, working with this bank. And he was an abolitionist. He'd written a screenplay that got made into a movie. And when he was on set in India or somewhere, they came up to him and they said, hey, your lead actor for this screenplay for the film was... was trafficked and he goes you mean they're caught in traffic in mumbai on a tuk-tuk and they're like no sir like trafficked human trafficking trafficked trafficked and he's like what's that isn't that didn't abe lincoln get rid of that in america like a couple hundred years ago And they're like, no, 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 human slavery is on the rise. It's the fastest growing crime in the world. It's the second largest criminal economy in the world. It's going to take over drugs in the next 10 years because there's a hell of a lot more profit in selling a girl because you can sell her in over and over. You don't have to keep buying cocaine to sell cocaine. You just rent this girl until she dies. So aside from the cup of rice it takes to keep her alive, it's like a 95% profit margin. Every bad time gangbanger to big time mafia is moving into moving girls because the profit's way higher than selling coke. And he was like, oh my gosh. So that was his eye opener into the world of slavery. And we were chewing the fat one day. And he said, How are a bunch of lawyers? Because I used to work for banks. How are a bunch of lawyers who work for banks going to really fix this $150 billion a year problem? And what we realize is you're never going to get the cops, the dirty cops and the dirty prosecutors in these third world countries to do their damn job. It's like pissing in the wind, pardon my French. Um, But what we realize is we could get the banks to fill the shoes of the cops that weren't doing their job. So when you when you sell cocaine, when you commit a crime and you make money from that crime as the bad guy and you take your cash on Monday morning and you put it in your bank, that now becomes a second crime. It's the crime of money laundering. And not only are the banks supposed, or sorry, the criminals not supposed to launder money because it's a crime. The banking institutions are also not supposed to knowingly let you as a criminal launder this money. And if they knowingly let you do it and just sort of turn a blind eye so they can make interest on your dirty money, that's a no, no for them. So in 2012, New York Times ran a front page article that said HSBC, which is a bank here in America, was fined um, almost $2 billion with a B for quote unquote knowingly allowing Mexican drug cartels and Iranian arms dealers to run dirty money from those activities through the American branches. That was the direct quote. And at that point, I just met my buddy and he and I looked at that and said, you know what? We can use that in sex trafficking why don't we get a list of names of the bad guys that we know from all these nonprofits who are, you know, finding out who the mamasons and the mafias are that are doing this, we'll send that list of names to an intelligence profiler, Thompson Reuters World Check, we'll get an intelligence profile drafted, we'll blast it out to the world banks, and now we back that bank into a corner. They are required once they're on notice to do the due diligence and go, is this guy who's a bad guy in banking in my bank in Bangkok or in LA actually a bad guy or is he an innocent guy who has the same name as the bad guy? And one Once they do their due diligence, if it turns out it's actually the bad guy and not just some innocent dude with the same last name, what they're supposed to do, they're supposed to do is freeze that account. And that, my friends, is how you hamstring the money lines to $150 billion a year industry and cause it to crater from the inside out because I don't care who you are, nobody but nobody does business without access to their cash, whether they're a cartel or a mamason or a legitimate accountant here in LA. So that is one of the things we're doing because to your point, yeah, you're right. You're never going to pull one girl out a time or bust one bad guy at a time and get, get right side up on this industry. But if you start, if you start to actually cripple the money lines, yeah, they can't do business without access to their cash.
0: Lee, another time out back with more of our conversation. Just stand up. My fight for freedom from the brothels of Asia to the streets of America. Back with more in a moment.
1: The truth will set you free. Free, free, free. But first, it will really tick you off. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet.
0: So, Lee, is there a... Um, profile of a typical pedo and pedo tourist in terms of, I don't know, socioeconomic groups? Are they, are they rich? Are they middle class? Are they poor?
2: They are all of the above. And I, I that's an excellent question. You're the first person to ever ask me that on air. Um, there was a study that Georgia did, the state of Georgia, um, on online buying habits of men who buy women for sex years ago, right when I was starting out doing the work. So it's a good 10, 15-year-old study now. And they basically, they ran an ad and online and it said, you know, girls for sale kind of thing, Um, adult girls for sale, I should say. And they wanted to see what type of online purchasers, you know, would fall into their little dragnet. And they got some some would-be buyers and partway through the transaction, before it was fully wrapped up, they would give them a little pop-up screen, excuse me, that said something like, hey, we're all out of adults tonight. So do you want to continue with the transaction? And if the guy clicked continue, it went further through the, the logistics and they'd get a second warning that was a little more harsh. It was, hey, dude, we're out of adults. You're going to be buying an underage girl. Do you still want to continue? And if they continued past that point, past that warning, the third warning was, just nailed him between the eyes with a, you know, pole am Really, it was, dude. You're buying a kid for sex. That's illegal in every state in the country. Are you sure you want to continue? I mean, it was, it was just about that explicit. And of course, the question is, what percent would continue, and who were they? Right? Are they the skeevy, pervy-looking guy who's waiting in a trench coat, naked underneath, you know, with his binoculars in the panel van from the 1970s, waiting to flash your junior high school kid as they get out of school at three o'clock, or is this, or is it somebody else? And what they found, it was really fascinating. I forget if it was 47 or 49. I I may have the the stats back backwards, but it was something like 47% of the men continued all the way through the transaction. So maybe they weren't looking to buy a kid for sex, but when luck was in their favor and they were going to be served up a 12-year-old or a seven-year-old instead of a 18-year-old, they had no problem hitting continue the transaction. And forty-nine percent of those men were white. Upper middle class or middle class from a good area of Atlanta, not the rough area of Atlanta, Georgia, but the nice area of Atlanta, Georgia, who were married, upper, upper mid, with a wife, with kids. They basically were your next door neighbor. So when people are like, well, it couldn't be, it couldn't, you know, did the Boy Scout leader really, you know, do what he did, did a little little kids? Was it, you know, did the doctor really, you know, do Unnefarious things to the Olympic gymnast. I mean, he's a doctor. I mean, why would he do that? You know, I I am here to tell you, it is your brother, your husband, your best friend, your neighbor, your accountant, your architect, your boy scout leader, your soccer coach, you know, your kid's soccer coach. It is everybody. It is every man who could be that pervert who's buying underage girls for sex.
0: Uh, How, how organized is this? And if it's if it's ve- if it's really organized, um, it would tend to suggest, and I'm talking about here in North America, let's say that they have um, corrupt officials watching out yep. for them. Yep. Uh, how yeah. How does this go? I mean, is it federal officials
2: it there, involved? Well, you know, Lynn Wood caught a lot of heat three years ago for saying that this kind of stuff went all the way up to the very top of our government, including the White House, and Everybody said, nah, it couldn't be. And you know, three and a half years later, now I think people are going, Well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> we've got the resident in chief who loves to sniff more than he likes to actually, you know, do anything political, um, sniff young girls' hair. But but yeah, it is in every government. And the reason so many of these bad guys get a pass is because they are being protected by those in government, by the cops, by the lawyers. You know, we we did a bust. Uh I'm part of the Orange County Human Trafficking Task Force here in my neighborhood. I was talking to a Huntington Beach police guy. They went to do a 2020. You know, you see those things where it's like the guy goes in, thinks he's buying an underage girl. It's like, gotcha, you're being arrested. I and, mean, you know, it was one of those kind of stings. His brother showed up. The cop had to arrest his brother. So, It is a massive problem, but you have bad officials at all levels of state and federal and local government, and you have the same in every other country I've ever seen or worked in or heard about. And that is why it's allowed to to continue. Um, What I will say is we can demonize those who are selling girls for sex all we want, but if people weren't buying, those guys would be selling illegal weapons and cocaine again. So part of getting a handle on sex trafficking is teaching our children you don't buy people for any reason. You don't make them work for no money on a shrimping boat in the South China Sea. You don't make a girl go into a brothel and get raped 10 times a day for no money, whether it's here in America at a travel lodge that may as well be a brothel down the street or it's an actual brothel brothel like that I work in and in Asia that's a karaoke joint that's you know nominally a karaoke joint, but is really a brothel. Like you just don't buy people and you don't enslave people. And if we teach people not to do that, you get rid of the demand and and it handles to some degree that the, the portion of the driver for this industry. But you know, there's politicians left, right and center everywhere. And they are in, in many cases, they self-select into jobs where it's easier to abuse girls. That's why they are uh, priests and pastors and soccer coaches and gymnast coaches, um, or they self-select into the foster system. So they're executives or administrators in CPS. Uh, in, you know, the foster care scenario. They're in the rescue facility for these girls. And what does that enable them to do? Well, they've got easy access to a bunch of youth that have no parents watching out for them or they wouldn't be in foster care in the first place. They wouldn't be in and out of group homes being runaways. And these guys can just grab these girls. They go missing. You know, he buries the file. Nobody's the wiser. Nobody's looking out for her. She's got nobody, you know, calling after her to see where she is. Why did she jump from this group home? And he's put her in his own brothel that's servicing the Hollywood elite, you know, or or the elite in whatever town. And these are true stories. I'm not going to name names, obviously, for obvious reasons, but stories just like these happen all day long, even in America. And it's it's really part of the problem.
0: We saw the, um, the way that Sound of Freedom was uh, either ignored by the media or denigrated by the media, it's a conspiracy theory, ignored by Hollywood, and so forth. Did your book receive the same kind of reception?
2: Well, my book is launching brand new, and it hasn't yet, but I'm sure when the mainstream media gets a hold of it, I'm sure it will get that kind of a reception, if for no other reason than fighting for freedom here in America for the last three years from the COVID BS and the tyranny. Um, You know, I've been called every religion known to man, you know, people like what religion are you? I'm like, Oh, I don't know. I need to check the LA Times to see what the newest hippies called me. The most recent hippies was a Catholic fascist. I've been called a Satanist, a Scientologist, a Jew. Catholic, but the the new one was a Catholic fascist. And I just, I had to laugh. I'm like, I don't even know what that is. Like I've heard of fascists. Like Hitler was a, I know what a fascist is and I know a lot of Catholics, but I'm not, I don't think I've ever stepped foot in a Catholic church. Not that there's anything wrong with Catholics. I mean, I'm friends with Bobby Kennedy. He's a great Catholic, but like, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just ludicrous. You know, they will say any damn thing they can to discredit you. And it's an upside down world. You know, nowadays, if somebody has been penalized by the local government, um, that's the restaurant I go to, because that means they stood up to the mask mandate and stayed open during the lockdown before, you know, if they didn't have five stars, you know, all of us normal people would be like. Oh, it's an Asian food place selling sushi that's only got two stars and they've had some blacklisting, you know, maybe maybe they sell bad sushi. I don't want to get food poisoning. We'd, we'd go down the street. Now I'm like, oh, you got two stars because you stayed open during COVID. OK, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to make it a, a point of servicing your business because you're doing God's work. Right. But but that is the reality. If you're seeing a hit piece on anybody that is your first clue. They're actually taking a pound of flesh out of the real enemy. So have I gotten the reception of sound of freedom? No, but it's a book, not a movie. And it's not as widely known yet. Will I get that reception? I'm sure it's coming. I mean, I've been called a Nazi for actually calling out my, my orange County board of soups for being Nazis. They were trying to Warsaw ghetto us and do a vaccine passport. So, um, I have no doubt it's coming and I wear it like a badge of honor, like any self-respecting actual citizen in a free society should. Um, it's a it's a it's a brave new world, and we aren't going to win the fight by allowing ourselves to be cowed and shut up. Hitler was able to do the atrocities he did because of his PR machine and his censorship machine. So we need to understand that that is the name of the game that we're fighting in in the main. That's the first battle that we're fighting. and you can't lose the microphone. When you lose the microphone and the video camera, you've lost everything. Because if you think about it, if you, Richard, or anybody else, you know, Charlie Ward, K, whatever, just random citizen journalists with a, with a rolling, you know, cell phone back in the day in 1941, if they'd been up, all up in the middle of Auschwitz, rolling tape on people being wheeled into the ovens, damn sure that wouldn't have been going on for as long as it was. But when you lose the ability to get your story out, because you're being so censored, that is, a, that is a tipping point in a not good way. So we cannot lose the microphone. We have to keep fighting the censorship battle. And I am here to tell your listeners, if they don't know this, we are winning that battle. 42% of self-identified Democrats in my country for a year and a half now have been watching Fox as their main news source. 90% of CNN watchers are no longer watching CNN everybody knows that the trusted media institutions are now really just legacy Operation Mockingbird media. And what used to sound like a CIA conspiracy, everybody now knows is actually a real thing. Um, that's why Congressman Church did the Church Committee hearings in like 1976. Uh, you know, the CIA actually paid in the 50s journalists to be on their payroll and run their narrative, and also put trained CIA operatives into journalistic outfits to control the narrative. And when you Google up today, and I have the film clip on it, but it's floating around on the internet, you can get that little 30-second film clip that shows 50 different newscasters saying the same thing at the yes, same time, absolutely. lockstep. Exactly. So- you know. If you're if you're not a freaking mental midget, anybody with a room temp IQ and above can look at that and go, self? I don't think that's independent reporting because they're not 50 different newscasters in 50 different time zones. They're not so psychic that they're using the exact same words to describe the exact same phenomenon on the nightly news. I mean, it's obviously a controlled narrative. People are waking up to it. And uh, no time like the present because we're facing a second holocaust if we don't get right side up on this.
0: Lee Dundas, just stand up. How do we get a copy, Lee?
2: Uh, You go to my website, which is leedundas.com. That is how you spell my name. My mother gave me extra letters. It is L-E-I-G-H-D-U-N-D-A-S.com. And you can select by the book. It takes you to a third-party website, which is my mother-in-law. She is a college, uh, she has college bookstores. So it'll ask you on there. What school are you affiliated with? Just check on the dropdown menu. I'm not with a school, no, no school, because uh, that's her main printing business. But she was kind enough to do the printing. That way, I actually turn a little bit of profit. And um, I take all the lessons I've been talking about uh, so wonderfully with you. This was a great interview. Thank you for having me tonight. And I put it in the book, and there's color photos in the middle of what it's actually like to be in a brothel, which you're never going to see anywhere else. Um, and like I said, I'll take the little bit of profit and uh, you have my promise that I will roll that back into the freedom fight, not just around the world fighting, you know, the sex slavery front, but also the battle that's even more important on our own shores here in Canada, here in America, in our first world countries for our own kids to stay out of a, a, a FEMA camp and um, and really get to see uh, the next year. We need to do a lot more right by our children than we have been the last three and a half years. So that is my promise to the masses. Um, it's been an honor getting to do the work I've done for the last 10 years more importantly the last three and a half years and i would love for you to buy the book because i haven't made a damn cent fighting for freedom since march of 2020 i gave up my day job my husband gave up his day job and we're about to be in the poorhouse. so uh please buy my book uh (laughs) it'll keep me out of the poor house for another month and i do believe you'll get some um really useful takeaway lessons you can apply to make your school board your county your city a lot safer for your own child during the next whatever they have in store for us this fall
0: Well, God bless you, Lee. You're doing the Lord's work. Uh, LeeDundas.com. And uh, the link is in the episode notes. So click on that and um, buy the book. Thank you so much for this.
2: Thanks so much, Richard. Appreciate you uh, having me on
1: today. A new Richard Sarrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday,
2: and Friday. Subscribe at StrangePlanetPodcast.com.